0: Hello everybody, Ash here. Now what you're about to listen to is an episode originally uploaded to the Ear Read This Patreon page. For the moment, I've paused uploads to and payments from the Patreon as I focus on building the main channel. But if you are a patron, you can still access all the bonus content we have on there for free. And if you'd like to support the channel in the meantime, there's a link in the episode description box below. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Right now you're reading in your newspapers and hearing over your radios about a murder. They call it the case of the lady in the lake. It's a good title. It fits. Hello patrons, and welcome to another exclusive episode of Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today we return to the novels of Raymond Chandler, this time looking at The Lady in the Lake. First published in 1943, it is of course narrated by private investigator Philip Marlowe, California's shop-soiled galahad. But this time he is out of his usual prowl of Los Angeles, as his case leads him to the sleepy mountain town of Puma Point. The Lady in the Lake is Chandler's fourth novel, and by now we know how to read the water. Marlowe's apparently simple brief, to locate a perfume tycoon's missing wife, will belie hidden depths where concealed pasts muddy the water like writhing trout, Every smile he meets hiding secrets and more murk. As usual, Marlowe will be made a pawn of, lied to, and coshed, but his spirit and language retains its trademark comic futility. At one point, a dollar goes into a pocket, with a sound like caterpillars fighting. The Arthurian references are even more overt than usual, starting with the title. And once again, Chandler has constructed the novel from previous short stories, this time Bay City Blues, No Crime in the Mountains, and a story also called the Lady in the Lake. But as biographer Tom Williams says, it was a difficult book for Chandler to write. He began in 1939. Throughout April, May, and June, he alternated between drafting Farewell My Lovely and The Lady in the Lake, switching when he ran into problems. The two novels may well have had a common origin, and there are structural similarities. Characters in The Lady in the Lake dimly resemble characters from the earlier novel, giving you the impression that they have fled the city and changed their names. We get a call back to Bay City, and a couple of characters from Farewell My Lovely, Red Norgard and Chief Wax, get a mention. Williams suggests that part of the problem for Chandler was the rural setting and the class of characters that came with it. The Lady in the Lake is about the everyday experience of corruption and how it affects normal people, he says, but Chandler's talent seems really to have lain in observing the rich. After The High Window, Chandler feared he had lost that fresh and sudden touch which is why he returned to this earlier idea. But the difficult book he produced was, if anything, more jaded and brutal than his last. As Mercia Mihaz writes, Marlowe differs considerably from his earlier appearances, as he hoists the flag of listless non-involvement. Sad and untogether, haunted by nightmares and growing visibly old, he has lost not only the lust for life, but the least professional motivation. Chandler wasn't happy with the book, and for years refused to even discuss it. Nevertheless, by now he was a major author and the book performed well, selling 14,000 copies in the US and 13,000 here in the UK. The book has the distinction of being J.G. Ballard's favourite Chandler novel, and many other fans hold it in high regard, for the novelty of seeing Marlowe out of the city and in unfamiliar territory, and for the plot which was lauded by crime fiction critics as being one of Chandler's most successful and least dependent on coincidence. Today, Adam and I will look at how right they were, as well as talking a bit about chess, King Arthur and Chandler's women. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with a big statement.
1: Okay, you've got to say this is your favorite one.
0: Um, no, it's not my favorite, but it is the first one where I felt we're in a completely different series.
1: I get that the tone, the tone is different.
0: Yeah. Well, he's
1: he's barely in LA.
0: No, he's not. We're we're rural, rural Marlowe. <laughs> yeah. It's
1: he's very much out of his comfort zone.
0: 80 miles out, I read on Wikipedia. I didn't sure. pick up on that on the <laughs> on the read through. But yeah, he is he's in uh, the countryside for most of it. Okay. And he goes to he goes to Bay it back to Bay City as well. A little call back to Farewell, my lovely. But yeah, it feels so different yeah. to um the last three. The last three feel like building along a line. And definitely. They're getting more and more concentrated. And we talked about the high window being a bit more melancholic, but yeah. it is still it still feels like a distillation of the groundwork laid down in The Big Sleep. And then, in my opinion, at its absolute tightest in Farewell, My Lovely, this feels like a, a totally different kind of novel.
1: There are definitely definitely some common themes, mm. like Marlowe gets distracted and investigates a completely different crime for a while. <laughs> yes. Or Marlowe gets knocked out again with a sap. Well, you, or...
0: it's funny you mention that. This is the first... we men- I think when we did The Big Sleep... We said at the end, all right, next one. Let's do a kosh counter. Um, this is the- how many how, how, how many koshes happen in this one? Just one. I, it was the first time the I remembered. Kosh. Like I, this time, I'm going to read it cover to cover. I'm going to do a kosh counter in the in the top corner, and it was just like I've I've got it on whatever page it is. Just big capital letters kosh kosh. <laughs> just the one kosh gets, gets put down with a sap. Yeah. Sometimes it's a sap. Sometimes it's a blackjack. I still think it feels like a really unwieldy way of like a frying pan would be better it's just it's it,
1: it, it's a way it's chandler's crutch from getting marlo from one scene to another without actually having to write him there mm. it's a lot easier for him to just get coshed and then he's then all of the set dressing is moved around him and he wakes up in a different place
0: <laughs> paris france
1: <laughs> one one day one day he'll get coshed and he'll be on the moon
0: Getting from one point to another in Marlowe's world is something that frequently takes a disproportionate amount of effort. Reading Chandler, you soon notice a favourite theme emerging, a habit of playing with levels of exertion. Small actions will be described as if they are performed with a surprising expenditure of energy. At one point in the high window, Marlow must conserve what was left of his leer. When two men enter Marlowe's eyeline laughing at the beginning of Lady in the Lake, a third man holds the door open for them and helps them laugh. Later, Marlowe eats dinner, then has to drink a brandy to sit on its chest and hold it down. At another point, a character is congratulated for sleeping on his stomach as if he were an athlete. He slept well. He was one of the best. A proliferation of small, sardonic moments like these add up to a sense of the world being somewhat rigged. You're always walking against the wind in Marlowe's game, or making a sandwich underwater. In other moments, the effort falls away and distances contract. An example comes in one of the stories Lady in the Lake is based on, Bay City Blues. The detective here is called Johnny Dalmas, a Marlow in all but name, and is on the phone to a cop called Violets McGee. Come on over, says Dalmas. My left arm is getting tired. I'm on duty, says McGee. I was just going down to the drugstore for a quart of VO Scotch. That's me you hear knocking on the door. Marlowe uses booze to travel mental distances quickly, often the moment of realisation in a case will come after a meditative night on the bottle. Head trauma, as we have discussed a few times, is another form of transport, though costly it will take you right into the middle of things. This focus on movement enriches the frequent references to chess. Around Marlow, some of life's pawns are plodding, effortfully, into dead ends, while others glide around with magic ease. In The Long Goodbye, Chandler famously describes chess as a war without blood, and as elaborate a waste of human intelligence as you could find anywhere outside an advertising agency. Marlow, as we have seen, plays chess on his own, and it has been suggested that this provides him with a connection to a bygone era of conflict, wars without blood, instead of the messy human misadventures he usually ends up investigating. On the first page of The Lady in the Lake, we have an indication that once again the world will not be playing fair. Marlow is looking at the building, to which he has been sent for a case. The sidewalk in front of it had been built of black and white rubber blocks. They were taking them up now to give to the government, and a hatless, pale man with a face like a building superintendent was watching the work and looking as if it was breaking his heart. So right in front of Marlowe's first move, black and white blocks are being ripped up. A clear sign that before he even gets started, the chessboard is destroyed, the rules have gone out the window.
1: Yeah, so plot, plot this. Marlowe's hired to find a missing woman.
0: A missing wife of a perfume giant perfume tycoon
1: not, not an actual perfumed giant
0: <laughs> yeah. um there's a lot of perfume in it there so there's a lot of a lot of smells in this one
1: bizarre um it's, just, it's got everything it's got it's got corrupt cops it's got shady doctors mm-hmm. it's got a man called bill chess do we want to get into the arthurian stuff now or should we save it
0: I tell you what let's do a bit of plot and then let's go to let's do a Arthurian bit of plot let's stuff.
1: not let, let, let's not do a malo and get distracted and <laughs> go do something else for a while yeah
0: so yeah he's hired by the perfume giant who is called derace kingsley and his wife crystal crystal kingsley <laughs> and yeah she's gone missing she sent him a letter saying she's run away
1: She's marrying her gigolo <laughs> yeah
0: yeah Kingsley's an interesting character. He's sort of—he uh, he tries to be a tough guy, and then he he, he sort of—he clearly respects Marlowe quite a lot, and he's kind of a bit of a softy, really.
1: Yeah, a literal, a, a a literal literary cuck in the most literal meaning of the word.
0: And uh, this quest takes uh, Marlowe out, as you've said, to out of L.A., out of his environs. Yeah, to Camp Kilcare among other places. <laughs> Yeah, he meets Bill Chess and then he discovers, as I'm sure most people might suspect from the title, um, the quite literal lady in the lake, which is a really yes. gruesome moment.
1: Yeah, normally. Yeah, but he's quite, get quite into detail about the state of her body. He'd clearly been reading up about what happens to a body in water. Yeah. And he wanted to show off.
0: And there's a lot of... He makes it sound as inhuman as he can. If you think about, yes. like... Uh, in the high window, when he discovers the body of that young uh, wannabe cop, George Anson Phillips, there's there's a lot of tenderness in how he's described. Um, I can't remember if it's him or the the coiner, but there's this sort of foot, foot at the wrong angle, and um, yeah, it, it's sort of not yeah, it's fatherly almost. Lacking here, yeah, yeah. very human, very lacking here. Yeah. yeah, this is this is like an alien thing, an inhuman thing.
1: We should say that the body they discover in the lake it's not crystal it is crystal it's bill bill chess's wife who's gone missing
0: yeah that's what they think at first
1: yeah well we're going through the plot
0: yeah okay <laughs> sorry you you were holding a few cards back <laughs> In literature, the Lady in the Lake is the watery enchantress who most famously bestows upon King Arthur the legendary sword Excalibur. But in different incarnations, the Lady performs other important functions too, sometimes appearing dangerous, at other times benevolent. Occasionally the character of the Lady in the Lake and Morgan Le Fay are combined into one. Merlin is said to have fallen in love with her, but she refuses him until he teaches her all his magic. Then once she has learnt all she needs, she buries him alive, sometimes in a tree, other times in a cave or a prison of glass. In Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, the lady here called Nimue then replaces Merlin at Arthur's court. Elsewhere she is known only as the Lady in the Lake, or as Neve or Vivian, a name Chandler has already used for one of the Sternwood sisters in The Big Sleep. The lady's multiple identities and sinister act of replacement is well-matched by the Lady of Chandler's novel. The body Marlowe discovers in the lake is taken to be the missing wife, not of DeRace Kingsley, but Bill Chess, a man who happens to be with Marlowe at the time. Bill's wife went missing around the same time as Crystal, who stayed opposite the Chesses. Marlowe doesn't know it yet, but what he has found is actually the body of the woman he is employed to find in the first place, Crystal Kingsley. Muriel Chess, who bore a resemblance to Crystal, killed her and dressed her in some of her own jewellery and clothes, before assuming her identity. This was something she had made a habit of, as Marlowe's investigation later reveals her other previous life as Mildred Haviland.
1: He gets threatened by a corrupt
0: cop. Yes. Well, I mean, that's a big thing in itself because the cops at the end of um, The High Window, which has that, you know, the Cassidy case and all of that kind of stuff. Yes. That Marlowe has that, that bit in The High Window where he's going, I'm treating the cops with contempt until you guys own your own souls, you don't own mine. Um, like, he's really yeah. fighting them. and But at the end, one of them sort of gives him a break and shows a bit of humanity and, I don't know, goes against the, the stereotype of the crooked cop. Yeah. This one... Holy shit, we're way off the end of the pier no al al aldagamo aldagamo, yeah, <laughs> who is just filth, utter filth does towards the end take on a bit of depth, no pun intended, but begins as w- probably the worst copies met so far, maybe even the worst character yes, absolutely
1: one he he only gets slimier when you find out what he's been up to. Yeah,
0: yeah. But again, we do also have a nice chief cop. Oh, let let's talk about the the nastiness. So Marlowe gets driven out to the sticks by two cops who want him uh, off the case. Yep. Covered in is it gin or is it gin the second time? It's whiskey the first time, I think.
1: Whiskey the first time, gin the second time. Yeah.
0: Gets covered in whiskey and sort of beaten up so they can <laughs> they can hang some drink driving on him, drink driving on him. Yep. It's
1: very, very, very north by northwest.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what's horrible is that you see um, DeGamo as a bully to his other cops. Yeah. They're, they're sort of like chuckling lackeys. They're not... Um... Yeah,
1: he's, he's, he's not just he's not just an arsehole to Marlowe. He's an arsehole to everyone.
0: DeGamo is a link back to one of the missing ladies' past lives. He was the lover of Mildred Haviland who disappeared and is now at least two personalities away from him. Towards the end of the novel, Marlowe is speaking to Mildred, who at this point is still claiming to be Crystal Kingsley, when he is once again coshed. In a scene reused from Bay City Blues, he then awakes covered in gin and confronted with one of the most graphic murder scenes in the series, the woman's body wearing stockings and nothing else, strangled, bruised and scratched by bitter fingernails. The savagery denotes a typical crime of passion, and once the body is correctly identified as not Crystal Kingsley, but Mildred slash Muriel, it follows that the culprit is her ex-lover, the shunned de Garmo. Although his crime is hideous and his behaviour throughout the novel deplorable, even by the low bar of bent cops in Chandler novels, it should be pointed out that the blame is attributed mainly to the woman he murders. We've met dangerous women before, but they have never been depicted as bitterly as Mildred Haviland. To her face, Marlowe calls her a cold-blooded little bitch if ever I saw one. Killing yourself and fixing things so as somebody else would get accused of murdering you, don't fit in with my simple ideas of human nature at all. To which Marlowe replies, then your ideas of human nature are too simple, because it has been done, and when it has been done, it has nearly always been done by a woman. Marlowe has always been cynical about, and especially suspicious, around women he feels are putting on a performance. Which, in fairness, is just about the entire population of LA. He sometimes come across a little neurotic about phoniness, as we saw in The High Window. But it's easy to become sensitive to fakeness in a world where even the doors close with a noise like phooey. When we look at the chief antagonists of his cases so far, they are usually women. But Vivian Sternwood in The Big Sleep was insane and pathetic. Velma in Farewell My Lovely doesn't win any fans when she kills the hopeless romantic Moose Malloy, but the evil she commits is in the name of keeping a secret past buried and we recognise that Velma's false face was something keeping her alive. When Chandler draws characters trapped in a lie, he has done so in the past with sympathy. Some demonstrate a wistfulness to throw caution to the wind and escape their facades. Take, for example, Velma, still calling herself Mrs. Grail and saying to Marlowe, Most men are just lousy animals. In fact, it's a pretty lousy world if you ask me. Money must help, says Marlowe. You think it's going to when you haven't always had money, As a matter of fact, it just makes new problems. She smiled curiously, and you forget how hard the old problems were. Earlier, after speaking to her on the phone, Marlowe gets a curious feeling of having talked to somebody that didn't exist. It doesn't come off as a moment of paranoia, but more like sadness. Mrs. Grail, true to name, doesn't, in fact, exist. Though she clearly likes Marlowe, her disguises prohibit her from connecting with him, or anyone else for that matter. She has become someone who by hiding has trapped herself away in the walls of life, and is now unable to call out when she needs help. When we hear at the end that after a cop tracked her down, she killed him and then herself, Marlowe is not surprised. He knows that she was tired of dodging by then. As for the High Window, the perpetrators of the counterfeiting scheme at the centre of the novel are male, as are what we might call the most devious and unpleasant figures referenced. There's Horace Bright who forces himself on Merle, Cassidy, a rich young heir we hear about who killed his secretary, and then the cops who colluded in covering it up. Women still have secrets and play false to Marlowe, but on the most part for honourable reasons, or at least morally ambiguous ones. There are certainly no characters that are simply a cold-blooded little bitch until we meet Mildred Haviland in her various get-ups. It's probably no coincidence that such a character as her gets the most sadistic and sexualized death in the novels so far. As a consequence, The Lady in the Lake has often been criticised for its misogyny. Some people have drawn a line between the sexism in the later Marlowe novels and the ageing Chandler's rocky marriage, and his scorn for young Hollywood girls he nevertheless desired and occasionally had affairs with. Whatever truth there may be in that, in my opinion, the depiction of Mildred harks back to Chandler's Arthurian connections. The women of Mallory and Tennyson are often drawn very crudely. They are archetypes rather than people. It took writers like T.H. White and John Steinbeck to turn a database of names into people with any recognisable psychology. In The Idols of the King, the Lady of the Lake is a straightforward force of evil. Chandler's adoption of a similar character, without the sympathy he demonstrated with earlier liars and murderers, certainly shows a great deal of disenchantment. Because I, I still laughed a lot. There's some there's some, there's some cracking lines in some it. Some great lines. Um... I don't want to give off the impression that this is somehow muted or or cuz cuz I thought it was fascinating. It's the one I most want to reread um, cuz I hmm. feel like
1: it is the most you're right it is the most it's the largest departure yeah from the Marlowe template which is take the case pootle around LA for a bit get coshed a couple of times <laughs> say some snappy one-liners and then arrest the first character he ran into. <laughs> yes which is generally how a lot of them go and i guess without giving too much away or we can it is once again the first person he runs into who is the big bad it is actually to nobody's surprise DeGamo. he dies in a pretty brutal way
0: yeah and um, sort of classic enigm- enigmatic uh, end line um mm-hmm. have you been noticing as you've been rereading them the end lines are always odd
1: they're always a bit nihilistic and a bit weird.
0: So I think again I think it's the high window the last one that ends with uh, him playing chess against himself and he says something like you and Capablanca at the end to no one. Mm-hmm. And this one um Degamo is pursued after being revealed as the big bad and drives off a cliff. Yes. And as I'll I'll flip to the end page it'll be easy to find as his body is uh, pulled out of the wreckage uh, Marlow says there were three men down there they had moved the car enough to lift something out, something that had been a man which has a sort of nice um, symmetry with the lady in the lake being some yeah. thing as opposed to a
1: does, does that line mean he's, he was a man because he's dead or was a man because he was so corrupt and he'd lost his way yeah. that even before he was dead he was no longer a man
0: I think both like de what is left of the real Crystal Kingsley no longer resembles a human. Marlowe tells us, I saw a wave of dark blonde hair straighten out in the water and hold still for a brief instant, as if with a calculated effect, and then swirl into a tangle again. The thing rolled over, once more and an arm flapped up barely above the skin of the water, and the arm ended in a bloated hand that was the hand of a freak. Then the face came, a swollen, pulpy, grey-white mass without features, without eyes, without mouth, a blotch of grey dough, a nightmare with human hair on it. Chandler has form in describing human bodies as inhuman matter. In the high window, Mrs Murdoch's face is described as being elephant hide, and when flustered, she looks like a side of beef. It is both body horror and body comedy. It serves to provide a reminder that regardless of status, everyone boils down to a similar-looking pile of stuff. Here in The Lady in the Lake, it shows how fragile an identity is, of course, fans of detective fiction will read a face disfigured to the point of being unrecognisable and immediately smell a corpse swap. But the imagery goes beyond the plot, the horrible ease in which people pick up and abandon identities is given a lot of thought in this novel. Marlowe says to Mildred, who is at this point pretending to be the woman she murdered, I got a rather different idea of you from Kingsley, from Lavery too. It just goes to show that we talk different languages to different people. Marlowe has plenty of experience himself in impersonating other people. At the start of this novel, he gives his name as that of the cop from Bay City Blues, Violets McGee. Perhaps as a result, he has a talent for reuniting people with the personas they'd tried to get away from. Here, he deliberately brings up the name of Muriel Chess to Mildred. To which, she looks surprised, but anyone can look surprised. That frozen-faced little drip? What is she to me? It is a particularly gruesome choice of words from the person who has turned the face of Crystal Kingsley into that grey-white mass by putting her into a lake. And whilst we are on the lake, I want to make a quick diversion. I seem to be on some kind of weird fishing streak. It seems like every time I do an episode at the moment, I'm finding fish that could all be relatives of one another. It started with the sword in the stone, with little Arthur magicked into a fish, swimming up to Mr P, the despot of a pike. Pike is the fish that Falstaff compares himself to in... Henry IV Part 2. And it is also, of course, the subject of a Ted Hughes poem that I recently did an episode on. And now what does Marlowe find when he first looks into the lake? A swirl of movement down there and a swift greenish form moving in the water. There's Grandpa, Bill Chess said. Look at the size of that old bastard. He ought to be ashamed of himself, getting so fat.
1: Marlowe does a double cross for once.
0: Yeah, yeah, he does. And it's really good. This the the climax is fantastic because yeah. as usual, we are um not allowed in Marlowe's head. Yep. And in the what you might call the last act, he is he looks like is going to absolutely
1: just fit him up. Yeah. Fit him
0: up or maybe even kill him. Yeah. Uh, but instead they end up sort of teaming up in order to go and arrest Kingsley. Um yep. who they suspect is the murderer all along. Well, Degarmo does. Marlowe lets leads him up the garden path with a, a certain clue involving a scarf he was wearing. Yep. Um but they they are going along with it and it is despite the the sort of the question of the scarf and you not knowing exactly why Marlowe is letting think something that's wrong. Um you really don't know what's gonna happen. And they they ended up they end up on a kind of road trip together. Which is uncomfortable and uh, odd and feels like it's heading for. Back
1: to Little Fawn Lake.
0: Little Fawn Lake, yeah. Um, It feels like it's heading for, again, no pun intended, a bit of a wet finish because it's like, oh, the cop's all right. Oh, it was Kingsley all along and he's hanging out at the cabin drunk, so they're just going to go and arrest him. We're going to have a sad monologue from another Moose, like a Moose Malloy like monologue, and uh, Job's a good Instead, Marlowe has figured out that Durace oh, sorry, not Derace, um DeGamo yep. was in a relationship with Mildred Havelard before she changed her name to um Muriel. I keep wanting to say Muriel Spark. <laughs> Muriel Chess. Muriel Chess, not Muriel Spark.
1: So yeah, there's a big big old to do.
0: Although it is a bit Muriel Spark like. You know, when we were when we discussed Muriel Spark all those years ago, um goodness, yeah. We we talked about sort of role playing and that sort of David Lynchy women moving between characters aesthetic. There's
1: also there's something very lynchy about that, that car drive to the lake as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought of of David Lynch a few times during Lady Definitely. in the Lake. That sort of small town Exactly, yeah. Smaller
1: town thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The rural small town setting isn't just home to murderers, but decent, ethical and folksy characters like the sheriff Jim Patton. A man who is worlds away from bent Bay City cops a man who shoots straight and says things like, I ain't fat, just well covered. We might expect the ageing, disenchanted Marlowe to be somewhat revitalised by getting away from Los Angeles, but he is anything but. Marseille Mihaz talks of the strange tranquility of Marlowe during this investigation. For a narrator that Chandler worried was becoming so dominant that he stifled the rest of the characters in the books, he is something of a passenger for the opening parts of the novel. Mihaz says that characters in The Lady in the Lake claw back a right to individuality. But they do not re-enter the Garden of Eden just by leaving the city and rediscovering nature. It does not make them good, but it makes their motives more personal. The murders committed in The Lady in the Lake have precise explanations in the actions and interests of the guilty parties. Paradoxically, the retreat into nature actually narrows their freedom of choice, bringing out their innate greed, jealousy, avarice, blind passion, and violent impulses. What we are finally presented with is the evil of the individual, not the evil of the universe. The landscape appears at first to be an oasis in hard times. The war, Marlowe notes, did not seem to have done anything much to Puma Lake. But there is no return to the Golden Age for our detective. We've seen in previous novels that appearances by animals are often significant, and here Marlowe encounters a tame doe with a leather collar, a sign that this rural idyll hasn't escaped human influence. The local place names of Little Fawn Lake and Puma Lake interchange often, reflecting the volatile nature of our antagonist, one moment a caricature of feminine docility, the next a lethal predator. Speaking of golden ages, I mentioned at the top of the episode that Chandler's more conventional crime plot had impressed fans of golden age detective fiction. In their compendium of reviews Catalogue of Crime, Jacques Barzun and Wendell Hertig taylor call the Lady in the Lake Chandler's masterpiece and say, The exposition of the situation and character is done with remarkable pace and skill, even for Chandler this superb tale moves through a maze of puzzles and disclosures to its perfect conclusion. Marlowe makes greater use of physical clues and ratiocination in this exploit than in any other. Though it's been hailed for being less heavy on coincidence than previous books, to me it's a bit puzzling why. In the titular scene, Marlowe just happens to be peering into the right bit of water, alongside Bill Chess, when the corpse of what they assume is his wife obligingly presents herself. Personally, I don't mind the coincidences, they are part of the enchantment, but I don't quite understand how people overlook that one. Chandler attempted to write a screenplay based on The Lady in the Lake for MGM, but the deal fell apart. Instead, the project was taken out of his hands and made into a curious film in which the entirety of the action is shot from Marlowe's point of view. It doesn't really work, and there are a lot of weird choices. In it, Marlowe himself writes lurid detective stories, which seems a pointless meta addition. The point of view technique gets wonderful performances from some of the cast, particularly an actor with the fabulously Chandler-esque name of Audrey Totter. And to be honest, the film's worth watching for her performance alone. But Marlowe himself is hard to get right, and here he comes off as drawling and slow on the uptake. And it doesn't help that because the cameras were so bulky back then, the supposed movements of Marlowe's eyes give the impression that he truly has been tranquilised. Chandler, unsurprisingly, thought the film was gimmicky trash, saying, "...the camera eye technique of the lady in the lake is old stuff in Hollywood." Every young writer or director has wanted to try it. Let's make the camera a character. It's been said at every lunch table in Hollywood, one time or another. I knew one fellow who wanted to make the camera the murderer, which wouldn't work out without an awful lot of fraud. The camera is too honest.
1: Should we come good on our promise to talk about Arthurian stuff again?
0: Well, yes. So this is the most Arthurian title. Um, Definitely. uh, The High Window smacks of chivalry a little, but... uh, yeah. And and we've seen that there are Arthurian motifs throughout. Marlowe's name was originally Mallory, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, yep. this is the most on the nose.
1: It's literally called the Lady in the Lake, except this Lady in the Lake isn't handing out swords. She's dead.
0: But she's handing out quests.
1: She is. Yeah, it's once again, Marlowe's shtick never gets old to me. Mm. The whole tarn, tarnished... Tarnished ex-cop with a chip on his shoulder, but he still just can't help himself. But be good, even if it gets him coshed. The
0: shop soiled. Yeah. The shop soiled Galahad. That's the one. Or pond soiled in, in this one. <laughs> pond sweat. Gin, gin,
1: gin soaked Galahad.
0: Gin soaked Galahad. Yeah, yeah. I, I really digging into these with you. I, I, I kind of mm-hmm. want to sort of get to the end and then uh begin again there are so many little arthur, arthurian nods that i'm sure there's something strange to do with merlin particularly going on right mm-hmm. from the big sleep and the 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 man dead under the oil fields um yeah the field, it feels like there's a connection there some, somehow and obviously the lady in the lake aside from um bringing arthur excalibur um she is also responsible for the death of merlin mhm with that kind of thing. And as soon as you see the names, you see something being put together. The fact that we've got characters called Chess and characters called Kingsley. Um Yes. D- d- quite besides the just Arthurian waft of things yep. like Mildred. And uh, <laughs> uh what's the um, perfume called? Something like
1: Gillernian, Something like that. It sounds a bit Welsh.
0: G- Gillerlane, sorry. Gillerlane.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: Not only did Nimue present Arthur with Excalibur and see off Merlin, but tradition also has her raising Lancelot and bestowing upon him a ring of protection. Marlowe discovers Muriel and Mildred are one and the same when he finds a ring inscribed Al to Mildred, June 28th, 1938. And incidentally, Bay City Blues, the story containing the scene almost identical to the one in Lady in the Lake where Marlowe finds Mildred's body, was published in June 1938. But just on the topic of other Arthurian beats, the name Camp Kilcare recalls Mount Kilaire in Ireland. In Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, Merlin transports the Ring of Standing Stones from Kilaire to Salisbury Plains, forming Stonehenge. The King of Ireland at the time, Gilloman or Gillomore, recalls the name of Kingsley's perfume company, Gillilane. Talking with Adam, I mentioned Mildred, sounding vaguely Arthurian, whilst neglecting to mention or correctly pronounce her knightly surname, Haviland. The name that she adopts, Crystal, seems a fairly standard choice for the flashy wife of a perfume tycoon, until we remember that the Lady in the Lake was said to have buried Merlin in a crystal cave. I don't yet have a grand theory of how all these references to Arthurian lore operate, but I'm pretty confident of two things. Firstly, that they are not merely aesthetic sprinkles, whose only function is a whiff of chivalry. They are instead carefully chosen references which inform the action. The Arthurian characters referred to in The Lady in the Lake correspond to one another, they aren't just a jumble of Easter eggs picked at random. The second thing I'm convinced of is that throughout the series, the references are most concentrated around the character of Merlin. But until I formulate a theory of how they actually work, I'll just have to keep reading with my whiskers primed. However, on a more basic level, it is worth just reflecting on how impressive it is that Chandler disperses all these archaic names into his contemporary America and that they fit so smoothly. Perhaps partly that's down to the diversity and Cultural mix of an up-and-coming Los Angeles, but also to the light touch of the writer, fitting in characters with names of ancient enchantresses alongside references to World War II.
1: It does. It does make reference to Pearl Harbor, so that dates it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, very, isn't it? Because very on it, it.
1: It for it's not very often that the Marlowe world is contextualized with real-world happenings.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: he never talks about who the president is or what's in the news. But the war comes up a couple of times.
0: He mentions old presidents to make a joke. He says something yeah. like those lines were old fashioned when Grover Cleveland was you know, he says things like that, but yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but there's a few references. Someone's someone's trying to get the war news on the radio. Yeah. At one point. Um funnily enough that reminded me of P. G. Wodehouse, who's his, his his um colleague at Dulwich College, of course. That weird yeah. Weird connection. Weird connection. Um, even yeah, even though the more we, we, I read them, the more I think it's not that weird. They write in a strangely similar way. Is
1: it is it ever brought up why Marlowe isn't at war?
0: It certainly hasn't been so far. Um, yet to reread the final two. Yeah, because um,
1: it does, the war, the war is happening. Yeah. But because Pearl Harbor is only quite recent at the moment, the Americans don't really care until around now.
0: Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. Because in the big sleep, isn't there, um, or is this just speculation? There's, there's, it's implied that he is an ex-army man from something he says.
1: There's some, yeah, it's, it's. I remember we we mentioned it before. I think yeah,
0: the general asks about his the cut of his jib, basically. You know, the general yeah. right at the start of the big sleep in the in the conserve the you know cup surrounded by all his plants. Um, yep. I, th- I think one of Marlowe's answers is taken as a bit of an army response. That's so vague, but I think possibly we mentioned it in in the Big Sleep episode. What was it? Uh, oh yeah, just on men. Um, we haven't actually talked about something that's been in these novels um, from from the first one, which is the homoeroticism in uh, yeah in Marlowe novels because it's uh, it, it really <laughs> it really leaps out at you. And
1: it is, it, it is undeniable the way that Marlowe interacts with men. Like you were talking about the way he treats one corpse compared to another. Mm. The way that he's talking about the dead man in the first instance yeah. is much tender, almost.
0: Yeah. And uh, wi- women get the brunt of repulsiveness. Obviously, there are lots yes. of uh, enigmatic, attractive women, but they turn out usually to be a bit vampy. Um, or and
1: out to exploit him or trick him or kill him
0: yeah sometimes they're sluttish who... sometimes they're murderous sometimes they're vapid
1: there's a couple of you know Madonna whore mm. characterizations in there as well
0: but like the the older women are repulsive um, and there are so many men who Marlowe seems to flirt with and says that, <laughs> there's, there's some really funny ones in this he he calls um Lavery a really nice piece of beef. Great. <laughs> and when he um when he leaves him for the first time, he says, So long, beautiful hunk <laughs> Which is Marlowe sarcasm, but also odd. Yes. Really odd. But you could see it two ways. You could see it with like over it you know, he's been around vampy, dangerous, attractive women so long that he has a sort of game plan with them. Um, whereas yeah. he's not as threatened by attractive men so he says yeah. what are they going to do like what are that. they going to do cosh him yeah exactly snog him i don't think so and he does seem like loathsome of the effeminate ones you know like hammer There has long been speculation about the suppressed queerness of both Marlowe and his author. Christopher Isherwood and his partner both got the impression that Chandler was gay when they first met him. And when a critic described Marlowe as clearly homosexual, Chandler was baffled and annoyed, saying that it left a nasty taste in his mouth. From what I know of Chandler's private life and behaviour, I think he was a heterosexual man, but I'm not too surprised that those who met him thought otherwise. You can hear more about what I mean in my conversation from October with Tom Williams, Chandler's biographer. But as for Marlowe, I think the question is a bit more complicated. On the one hand, we'd be forgiven for thinking his homosexuality is screaming at us in the face, He has a sneering disdain for sexualized women, combined with an intimate, at times competitive understanding and appreciation of their playbook. He has an eye that lingers on male beauty. You could find an example from any book, but his descriptions of Red Norgard in Farewell My Lovely stand out in particular. His voice was soft, dreamy, so delicate for a big man that it was startling. It made me think of another soft-voiced big man I had strangely liked. He had the eyes you never see, that you only read about. Violet eyes, almost purple, Eyes like a girl, a lovely girl. His skin was as soft as silk, lightly reddened, but it would never tan. It was too delicate. He was bigger than Hemingway and younger by many years. He was not as big as Moose Malloy, but he looked very fast on his feet. His hair was that shade of red that glints with gold, but except for the eyes he had a plain farmer face with no stagey kind of handsomeness. It's hard not to notice that as he is staring at Red and saying this, There are people in gay clothes and gay faces going past and getting into taxis. This Red Norgard is the man that Marlowe surprisingly and suddenly shows vulnerability to having just met him, confessing that he fears death. As they part, Red tells him to drop by sometime once this is all over. Some writers have pointed to a half-concealed gay code throughout the books, a way of saying the unsayable in an era where homosexuality remained the love that dare not speak its name. Other evidence in the books we've looked at so far include uh, Marlowe impersonating a homosexual at one point, and also the woman he displays the most affection for in The Big Sleep is described as having a noticeably boyish cut of hair under her silver wig. Marlowe's flashes of vicious but quotidian homophobia tend to encourage the impression of a closeted man rather than dispel it. And we shouldn't forget that his namesake, Christopher Marlowe, is traditionally described as the most legendary homosexual in the history of Elizabethan theatre, a distinction that no doubt took some doing. But neither should we forget that mystery stories like Chandler's are designed to indicate hidden depths at every turn. Marlowe's personal history is deliberately enigmatic. It's also true that a lot of gay slang we are familiar with today was popularised by the pulps. Fairy, for example, was picked up from soldiers who performed the duties of remote wives to fellow soldiers and earned the description of godsend or fairy gift. Dashiell Hammett was stopped from describing the young companion of an older man in one of his stories as a catamite, and so he swapped it for the word gunsel. The censors assumed that it only meant gunslinger, and that's the meaning that it carries today. But it was also used to describe a young homosexual lover, and originated from the German word for gosling.
1: What do we think about Lady in the Lake?
0: It's the, definitely the most mysterious. It's,
1: it, it's an actual mystery, mm. as opposed to Marlowe getting in over his head.
0: Yeah, I mean, just I mean, just in the sort of feeling of it, it it um there's something um and maybe this is the Lynchian feeling. There's just something in the air about this one, or something in the water, maybe should we say, um that just feels strange and yeah, not as melancholic as the High Window, which was really pointedly moody mm-hmm. and and sort of pulled a pose of being a bit forlorn. This feels really otherworldly
1: yeah it's it's it does stand apart mm. and in a good way I liked it I do like this one
0: where would you rank it we're four in should we put Ooh. our cards on the table and rank them
1: hard to rank I big sleep is always going to have a very special place in my heart yeah I think big big sleep is still firmly number one with a bullet then it's probably this one okay and then maybe high window mm-hmm. and then farewell my lovely
0: Okay. Well, mine would be very different because Farewell My Lovely is definitely my favorite.
1: <laughs> really? Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> just cuz
0: I think it's it's just a banger. I ju- I just Man
1: likes Man likes his Moose Malloy. I
0: do love my Moose Malloy, but it, I I just admire the the hit rate of Farewell My Lovely. I think it's astonishing. Just pound for pound and sentence for sentence.
1: Gets your money's worth is what you're saying. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then I'd probably go um, I'd probably agree with you and put this one in 2nd mm-hmm. maybe that's the freshness because I loved the high window very much
1: is big is big sleep going to be your last very least favorite
0: you know that I mean we are be we're choosing between happinesses here because i I've loved all four of them yeah there's
1: not not a bad there one there
0: is not a bad one, so if you asked me next time, it might be a completely different order interesting. I, I think farewell, my lovely, will reign supreme, but the other, the others might change order. Looking forward to it. So, little sister next.
1: Little sister next. Yeah. Shall we um, kosh co- each other yeah. to end the scene?
0: Right. Let's both do a kosh counter for little okay. sister.
1: I want it to be more than one. I'm expecting. I'm expecting multiple koshes.
0: <laughs> okay. We'll open with our disappointment or satisfaction at the quantity of koshes. <laughs>
1: Depending on how excited we are when we start the next one, if it goes, wow, yeah. gosh, it's gosh, definitely gosh. going to be. <laughs> Every chapter yeah. ends with a cosh. Okay, cool. Marlo, Marlo ho- horribly brain damaged by the end <laughs> of the little sister. <laughs> <laughs> he's coshed, been coshed one too many times. To be
0: fair, the amount of times he's been coshed already.
1: Yeah, it's really... It, it, you, you might think we're exaggerating, but I always get a little... There's a little burst of joy in my heart every time I see that a chapter ends with Marlowe being caught.
0: I can't remember. Is it The Big Sleep or Farewell, My Lovely where it was just off the scale? I think it's... I think it's it's, it's, it's not Farewell, My Lovely. He gets coshed.
1: It's like four or five times in a book that only has like 11 or 12 chapters. Four
0: or five times in 200 pages is a lot of brain damage. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's
1: it's like once every 40 pages. Yeah it's a cosh
0: imagine if you were just sitting there reading it and you got coshed every 40 pages how would you do a podcast
1: that's well, well that's 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 the James Patterson part of this podcast
0: do you think that's the Patterson that's... technique
1: yeah he um he has he has his co-writer isn't actually writing anything they're just coshing him <laughs> repeatedly.
0: he just rings a bell and she comes in and coshes him behind their head. <laughs>